When I was in um, grade seven, it was 1986, which sounds like a long time ago. Well, for some of you it doesn't, but for some of, for some of you you're like, 1986? Was the world in color then? And it was. Anyways, 1986, I had this amazing video game. I enjoyed it so much. It was called Space Quest. Put in this big five-inch floppy disk into the disk drive of our IBM computer, which had, uh, I think it was something like uh, 32 uh, kilobytes of memory. or something. I don't know, something crazy like that. But anyways, Space Quest, it was like you would walk around as Roger Wilco and you would have to make all these choices and you would type things in and try and solve this big quest. And um, so I was telling my boys about it. I found it online. Oh, this is hilarious. Here it is. Let's, let's play this thing. So it's like one of those, one of those great, uh, got one of those great MIDI audio tracks. You know, it sounds like that as you're playing it. And, and so I'm like, this is fantastic. And so Nigel wasn't really into it. Isaiah was like, oh, this is cool. Let's check it out. And Nigel was kind of like, I don't know. And I said, and I said, uh, I said to him, I said, Nige, this is like, this is what inspired Zelda Breath of the Wild. Well, that was a mistake to mention that. Because immediately it was met with, what are you doing comparing Space Quest to Zelda Legends of Breath of the Wild? And, uh, but anyways, it was, it's a game full of choices and it's a fun game. And uh, our lives, not unlike these games full of choice after choice after choice, are, uh, riddled with choices, choices where we want to ex execute wisdom. We live in this vibrant city of Kitchener-Waterloo. It's thriving in so many different ways. There's a lot of diversity here. And, and whether you are in career mode, whether you're building a business, looking to build a business, whether you are a university student and you're contemplating your future and your career path, or you're a high school student, you haven't figured that out yet, right? Or you're an elementary kid in the, in the service today, and you're like, hey, man, I'm just having a good time right now. Figure that stuff out later. I got lots of time, preacher. Okay, maybe that's you. But we all want to operate with wisdom. Uh, we, want, we want to operate with wisdom and, and choices as we navigate our way through our lives. So this summer, we're going to be exploring some wisdom literature in the scriptures from the book of Proverbs. And um, because uh, we very much want this guidance in our lives of, of the wisdom of God's word. Proverbs was written by Solomon who was, uh, was a philosopher, considered one of uh, the wisest men in the Old Testament. But at the same time, though he was considered one of the wisest men in the Old Testament, you look at Solomon's life, and he, was all, he also had one of, the, one of the most problematic lives in the Old Testament. He was also one of the most depressed, anxious people in the Old Testament. These are things we forget about Solomon. He, read, he, he wrote Ecclesiastes, we did a big study on that, and the tone of that was not great. When he wrote Ecclesiastes, he was having an existential crisis. He was at the end of himself. But he wrote Proverbs for us, uh, for, for us and, of course, uh, by ex the people of God by extension. But predominantly, Sol as well, we want to keep in view, Solomon had a son, Rehoboam. And Rehoboam was not wise at all. He was the furthest thing from wisdom. And Solomon, very much like us, not only wants to be led through life by the wisdom of God, but wants his, his son to be led with the wisdom of God. And so we've got these uh, Proverbs that are available to us. And so we want to take a look at this because uh, Solomon was a son of David, foreshadowing Jesus, who is the, son of, the true son of David, who would come and not just uh, you know, give Proverbs and wisdom, but actually embody the wisdom of God 
walk out the wisdom of God, ultimately for us through the gospel, demonstrate the wisdom of God. And uh, so in Christ, all of the wisdom of God culminates and it manifests. And so we're going to read through the pro- some of the Proverbs this summer, but we're not just going to read them like quotes and quips, like fortune cookies and move on with our day. We're going to think thoughtfully about how Christ has embodied these things and fleshed them out, lived them out, and how we then, as those resting in grace, um, live in freedom guided by this wisdom literature. Proverbs chapter 1, I'm going to read the first seven verses. The Proverbs of Solomon, a son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance, to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is God's word. Now throughout the Proverbs, you're going to find there's these constant appeals to give wisdom to the foolish, wisdom to the weak. And um, there's this constant sort of appeal. And what's interesting is at the time when these Proverbs were written, around 970 BC, people weren't looking out for the foolish, People were taking advantage of the foolish. People weren't looking out for the weak. The strong were preying on the weak. That's what the ancient world was like. And so constantly here, though, we see a great contrast from the, the ancient world, which is you take advantage of, of and you oppress the foolish and the weak. But here we see the heart of our God trying to come and make an appeal to the weak who ultimately came in Jesus Christ to save the foolish and the weak We are the foolish and the weak. He has come to give us wisdom. And in Jesus Christ, that's personified. But even here, all throughout the Proverbs, you're going to find kids, if you look in your notes, you can see that um, it says that over and over through the book of Proverbs, he keeps on making these appeals saying, my son, my son, you know, receive, uh, you know, receive wisdom, dear son, receive wisdom. And the whole book of Proverbs has this feel of adoption. It's, it's, It's like to a son. The voice of wisdom is a woman, and she's crying out, constantly crying out to be heard. And so, so Lady Wisdom is constantly making appeals, and there's this constant appeal to this son. And the whole tone is not just these cold precepts, but there's a warmth uh, and an, an inviting relationship. Kids, if you look at your notes, you'll notice that none of the Proverbs are going to sound like this. None of them sound like, do this in order to become my child. All of the Proverbs carry the same tone. Let this guide you my dear child. We're saved by grace and we desire to walk in the wisdom of God because we're saved by the grace of God. We don't walk in the wisdom of God so that in the end we're accepted by God. So for you kids here and you're looking at your notes, that's important to know. Often as as Westerns, we think of the Proverbs as kind of ancient tweets. You know, these short little things, there it is, 140 characters, ah, thank you, and you move on. But when you read the whole book, they're actually repeating themselves and they're building. It starts with uh, so the voice of wisdom is a woman. Then it starts with an adulterous, an analogy of an adulterous woman. It ends with an analogy of a virtuous woman. And there's like this strong appeal that you're, the, the, it's like which, which woman is, attract, is attractive to you? Appealing to, you know, uh, the heart and the soul. What, what is your appetite um, given to? 
Is this attractive to you? Is this attractive to you? The virtue or the vice? And so all of the book of Proverbs is kind of couched in this um, examination of the heart, examination of the mind, examination of the soul. Right? If you're attracted to the, the, the woman of vice, that says something about the condition of your heart and your mind. If you're attracted to the woman of virtue, that says something to the condition of your heart and your mind. And so the Proverbs are more than just like these ancient tweets. It's actually philosophic. It's appealing to us to go, actually, why am I attracted to what I'm attracted to? And not only that, but wisdom has having the insight to know where those choices are, having the foresight to, to know where those choices are headed. So we're going to look at two things really this morning from this text. The first thing is um, we're going to ask the question, what is the wisdom of God? And then the second thing we're going to ask of this text is, how do we learn to walk in the wisdom of God? So first of all, what is it? What is the wisdom of God? When you look at the first four verses there, you're given some excellent uh, descriptive words describing wisdom. You're going to find insight and righteousness and justice and equity and prudence. A lot of the idea behind this is that you're, you're seeing distinction. It's like the foolish person just broad brushes life, broad brushes their choices, sees everything in a very simplistic way, but the wise person can see nuance. The wise person has this insight that in the Hebrew language it's banah, which means it's like you're seeing something with distinction. Um, you kind of think of it this way. It's like when you watch BBC's Sherlock and he walks in a room and he starts to, his eye starts looking around and he's seeing all these distinctions. And um, the book of Proverbs is encouraging us to see distinctions. If you think about when you have a relational conflict, you might say, well, the reason that my friendship is strained with this person is because of this. Or maybe it's that, one or two things. And you go to a counselor, a professional psychologist, and after they talked with you for 45 minutes, they don't see two possible things. They see 12, let's say, because they've got wisdom and insight. They're seeing things with distinction. Maybe you're new in business and you're going through a struggle and you're like, well, I could do that or I could do that. Then you go and you talk to somebody who's been in the industry for 25 years and they see not two things, but eight possibilities. There's a, there's a wisdom that comes when you're able to see things with distinction. Same thing when you're um, looking out at society and we're looking at how do we grapple with really huge social dilemmas, you know, things like these huge challenges like systemic poverty, for example. Um, you can't just look at something like systemic poverty and say, oh, well, easy. The reason why there's poverty is because we have the wrong, uh, we've got the wrong social structure. So simple to fix it. Just get rid of this party that has this philosophy of social structure. Vote in this party that has this philosophy of social structure. There you have it. That's, that's too broad brushed. Everything is so complex. And so what the scripture is provoking us to do, as we consider our own hearts and our own minds first and foremost and then our lives, is, Lord, would you give me the wisdom to be able to see things with distinction? So that, this is, these are some of the words that um, gives us. But there's another important descriptor of wisdom and you'll find it there in the first four verses and and it's interesting the word righteousness comes up right what is right as god what is right as god would define something being right right what is justice or equitable or prudent as god as god would say it so godly wisdom isn't simply having insight into a situation that's right in front of you it's actually having the foresight to know where's this choice going to lead if i make this decision and and Ultimately, am I doing it with a depth of godly character? So when we look at these, 
when we look at these things, we recognize this isn't something that just, you don't get wisdom in a minute. You can't get wisdom by just praying for it and then going, okay, there, and then you get zapped with godly wisdom. What we find is this is, as children of God, this is actually a lifelong journey of renewal. It's a lifelong journey of reform. It's a lifelong journey by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because you've been saved by grace and you're now filled with the Spirit, it's a lifelong journey of God opening your eyes so that you can see your wayward appetites in your heart and in your mind. It's actually God doing a long process of renewal so that when there are choices that are before you that conflict what God would say is righteous, that, you, that there's actually something in you that wants that before you're even able to actually choose it. There's something in you that can actually see that. Lest we just run on autopilot like an operating system in the, in the background. Think of it this way. It's a, it's a long uh, process. You kids that are in the service, if you've ever played Super Mario or Mario, there's these power-ups through the game, right? And when Mario gets a power-up, the, the, the Mario character goes, dilly, 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 and then there's this song that starts playing for a little while while he's got his power-up. Right? And it's playing. You know what I'm talking about? Power-ups? The kids are like, I'm so nervous. I don't know what you're talking All the adults are like, oh, totally. <laughs> Preach, brother. The power-ups. Wisdom is not like a, a power-up. You don't just go home and pray, Oh God, today's sermon is on Proverbs 1. I've, I'm a child of yours, saved by your grace. Would you give me wisdom? And you go into your marriage. And you go to work. This is like a long... This is like a journey of renewal. Because God's like, yes, I, yes, you are my child. Yes, I have saved you in grace. And now there's this whole process of renewal by that same grace. Right, if I was to pull from Titus... Uh, chapter 1, verses 11, where it says, the same grace that saves you teaches you things. And if you start reading through that text, it sounds a lot like Proverbs 1, the things that it teaches you. Yes, but it's not a power-up. Because the reason why you're in that dilemma in a relationship or w- whatever your scenario may be is because there's something that's running due to an appetite that's been running, that's been served for a long time, that's got to actually stop now. So you actually desire something else. So as much as I would love for the wisdom of God to be like a Mario power-up, it's just not that way. Um, the only way that w- the wisdom of God can, can guide us is if we have a heart that is guidable. Here's the good news of the gospel. Because of Jesus Christ and because you are united to, to God by grace and faith alone, apart from your wise works, apart from any works, because that's true, the Spirit is now in you through a lifelong uh, process of renewal making your heart more guidable. As you go to God in prayer, as you are going to God in repentance, uh, to borrow the language that was used wisely while we were, using, while we were um, in our confession today, that we're actually working out what God uh, has worked in by his grace, this long process of renewal, that our heart, we become increasingly more guidable. As things that were once attractive to us are now less attractive to us, it's a way of relating to things that God wouldn't consider wise or righteous or good. As those things become less attractive, as grace does its work, we begin to walk in wisdom. It's a lifelong process of renewal. And those of us who've been Christians for any length of time, we all know that that's kind of, that sometimes can feel like a two steps forward, three steps back sort of a situation. Because we're all in this process of having our hearts and minds reoriented. And so, we want to live our lives increasingly guided by the wisdom of God. And we want our children to live their lives guided by the wisdom of God. And so a good place to begin is to have an honest exploration of our capacity for foolishness. 
If I want to be wise, I have to, ha- I have to be willing to examine how I'm foolish. And so as, as we kind of look at this text, what we're going to find is um, the Bible talks about all through Proverbs, fools. And fools are essentially out of touch with reality in a few ways. One of the ways the fool is out of touch with reality is the fool um, that says there is no God, that looks at the cosmos and the world around and considers the problem of, of evil in the world and uh, considers uh, the truth of a universal, sen- universal sense of morality that is shared in the human experience whereby regardless of your culture or your your faith walk, we, we all agree there are certain things that are immoral, that should be condemned, and we, we appeal to something outside of just like general consensus, right? Something like sex trafficking. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or an atheist. We're both probably going to sit down and say, we both agree on this point, right? We're going to, but, but one of us is saying there's a creator and a God, and this person is created in the image of God, and therefore they deserve dignity and love, and sex trafficking is wrong, and perhaps our friend who's an atheist would say, well, I don't believe there's a God at all, but I just believe that sex, sex trafficking is, you know, somehow not helpful for the propagation of the human species or they explain it away through evolutionary biology. But at the end of the day, they're arriving at it wrong. They're not going to say, well, there's no God, so I think sex trafficking is right. We're outside of our human experience appealing to a sense of universal morality. And what is the, uh, what is the reason for that? The Bible says that for us to deny that there's a creator, the Bible calls us fools. It's as humbling, right? Proverbs uh, chapter 12, verse 1 just gets right to the point. It just goes, those who hate correction are stupid. uses that language. You know, what does that mean in the Hebrew? Oh, it means stupid. Okay, so that, you know, the Bible gets right to the point. It offends us. It offends our faculties in that way. It makes us say that there's a God that is great and we are small. So that's one aspect of foolishness. But there's another aspect of foolishness. And uh, we have to examine the, our capacity for this as, as Christians, certainly. And it's a foolishness that believes that um, essentially you deserve a good life because you're making good choices. That comes up over and over and over in Proverbs. This kind of cause and effect idea. Uh, it's the theme of the entire book of Job, actually. Right? Uh, Job's friends, for, for about uh, 38 chapters, they pontificate on why Job's having a hard life. Because their whole idea is, oh, if you do the right thing, then you're going to have a good life, period. Good people get good things, bad people get bad things, there you go. Be a good person and you'll have good things. Job, it's simple, where's the sin in your life, right? This is how the moralists, and what does God say? You get 38 chapters into Job and God says, who is this who darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? In other words, you don't under- none of you understand. You can, everything that has just been said here is uh, unwise, because life is just not that simplistic. You can be a very loving, caring, good person and have terrible things happen to you. It's the world that we live in that has fallen and broken by sin. And so, the Bible gives us these categories for foolishness. But when we look at this text right here, if you look at verses 4 and verse 7, we're given two different kinds of fools that we can think about. Because you and I both want to be wise and a good place to start in saying, Oh God, would you by your spirit make me wise is to examine how it can be foolish. And maybe you're here and you're thinking, oh, this is a good point in the sermon to distinguish which of these two fools the person next to me is. That's not a great way to try and apply this part of the text. Or maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, ah, Paul, um, thank you for breaking down these two fools that are outlined in verse 4 and verse 7. But you see, I'm not a fool. I've been saved a very long time. I'm quite sanctified and I love God's word and I read it every day and I'm quite wise. So to that person, I would say, um, you're the second kind of fool, okay, which we're going to see in a second, all right? So here's, here's the first fool. 
The first fool is a simple fool, and that's in verse 4. And the second kind of fool is a stubborn fool. These are the two that are given to us here. A simple fool and a stubborn fool. The simple fool is so naive and insecure. The simple fool um, lives their life making choices based on what everybody else thinks. The simple fool is constantly caring about consensus, caring about what other people think, and making their decisions according to what other people think. That's the simple fool. The stubborn fool doesn't care what anybody thinks. The stubborn fool knows what they think. The stubborn fool is only interested in what they think. And when you break down those, uh, when you break down uh, those two kinds of fools, um, leaning heavily on the Hebrew scholars that will break down those two words and how they're used in other Hebrew literature, that's how it plays out. The simple fool cares about what everybody thinks. The stubborn fool only cares what they think. But what we want to be uh, is we want to be God's fool. We want, to care, we want to care what God thinks. And we want to realign our hearts and our minds to what he thinks. And you know, that's more painful than it sounds. It's not as simple as saying, oh, well, here's how God thinks about this particular ethic, so I'll just shift my view on that. Because we're bombarded by the views of the world we live in, the culture, upbringing, circumstances. And so that can be very difficult. But um, this, is, this is what we're given, is to say there's these two kinds of fools, and we don't want to be... Uh, we don't want to be either of them, but we have the capacity to be both. And so a good place to begin is in the repentance of saying, Oh Lord, how have I been both? Or where in my life have I been a simple fool, uh, made decisions uh, because I felt pressure uh, from the cultural conversation around me? Or where have I been a stubborn fool and not cared about criticism when I should have cared very deeply about that criticism? Um, and so wisdom is seeking God to kind of desire to operate with that kind of, of nuance. And so the wisdom of God is desiring to live out this way with a sense of depth of character. And this is what, what the Proverbs are appealing to the children of God. But how do we do it? How do we learn to walk in the wisdom of God? Well, in verse 7, it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And um, it's the beginning of knowledge and the beginning of wisdom. And this word fear here is not phobia, like you're afraid of spiders. This word fear here is, is, it is saying that the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom, is having a sense of awe about God. It's having a sense of wonder. It's having a sense of worship. Until you have a sense of awe and wonder and worship, there will be no wisdom. You know, this church is four years old, and for four years, constantly thinking about how do we marvel at Jesus, at his grace, making sure that regardless of what text I'm in, you notice Proverbs 1 doesn't explicitly speak about Jesus, but yet we can't get through a sermon without marveling at how, which is where this is about to go right now, about how Christ personifies the scriptures and personifies God and fulfills them for us and unites us to him because until we marvel at what God has done in his great grace until we have a sense of awe about him and we love him there will be no knowledge there will be no wisdom why because it's not merely an intellectual exercise the, the simple fool is not simple simply because they need more education oh well Paul if you stand up and you teach the text and you break it down and you give them lots of academic information the church will be wise the problem underneath the problem is the heart 
that wants and longs after the wrong things. And so what Christ has done is he has come and he saved us from the, the faulty operating system underneath, causing us to want and desire the wrong things, leading us to relating to our family, our friends, our spouses, you know, our children, our employers on campus, those who don't yet know Lord, you know, relating to them foolishly as a result of that sinful operating system underneath. And so Christ has come to deliver us from the slavery of that sinful operating system and, and, and by his great grace begin this renewal so we can walk in wisdom. So it's not a fear and a phobia at all. What we find is that this is not a fear that we're going to hurt God. I'm sorry, this is not, this is, that is what the fear is. It's not a fear that God's going to hurt us. The fear of the Lord. We're not afraid God's going to hurt us. Really what this fear is, it's such an awe and a reverence and a worship that what we desire is that we don't want to live in a way that, hurt, that would hurt the heart of God. It actually reorients our hearts and our minds' desire to live to his glory and to desire uh, him. And so because Jesus lived the perfectly wise life and died a substitutionary death, because he took the wrath and the judgment that was coming to you and now united to Christ, the Holy Spirit is at work in you doing this renewal in you, right? By his mercy, this wisdom, this reorientation of your appetites, it is coming to you. It is something the Spirit is doing in you. This is the good news of the gospel. So this reorients your posture now in terms of repentance and prayer and coming to God, desiring the wisdom of God. Because as grace grips your heart, you're not a simple fool Right? Constantly driven, driven by what others think. You're liberated. And you're not a stubborn fool, shackled by the nearsightedness of what you think because you're liberated. You're really ultimately interested in what God thinks. And so you will go to him in prayer. and You will go to his scriptures and you will ask that the Holy Spirit would apply them to you, to your heart. As Westerns, we think so much, we think about the Bible so much academically in terms of understanding something intellectually as opposed to it doing something and I'm not diminishing that, but doing something deeper. It's like, for example, the, the, the predominant work of the Spirit is to nourish you and to reorient your appetites. If I asked you what you ate for lunch 14 Thursdays ago, the odds of you remembering that are probably not great unless you eat the same thing for lunch every day, then you remember. But if you don't, you probably don't remember. And the, the point is, you wouldn't come to a point in your life where you go, I never remember what I ate. Ergo, I should stop eating. Because the, the point of you remembering it is completely different than the point that it nourished you of course you don't remember that what you ate for lunch 14 thursdays ago but the truth is it nourished your body and the constant prayer the constant renewal the constant worship the gathering together the reading of the scriptures whether here or in your home there's a nourishment that's happening in you and in your children making us more guidable making our hearts more guidable reorienting our loves and so we embrace the foolishness of the cross and it frees us from the foolishness of the world. By the foolishness of the cross, what I mean is God took, you know, something that was utter foolishness. God is dying for his enemies. God is, Jesus Christ is the only king in human history that established his kingdom by laying down power and not taking up and exerting power. It's foolishness. But when we allow the foolishness of God's radical love for us 
to really grip us, it begins to reorient the way we will love God and love our neighbor. Reorient the way that we relate to our God and to our neighbor. Right? Jesus wasn't a king who came on a lightning bolt and said, get it right. He came and he went to the cross because we couldn't get it right. And so the wisdom in Proverbs is this wo- woman who's crying out, right? saying things like, whoever listens to me will dwell in safety. And then Jesus, centuries later in Matthew 7, says, whoever listens to my word is like a wise man who builds his house upon a rock. The personification of lady wisdom. The personification of the wisdom of God. When you look at the birth of Christ, you've got wise men bowing down. Let that image, as you consider Proverbs 1, as you consider being a wise person, let that image provoke you. The wise men were cultural leaders, educated. They studied the stars. It's the most complicated mathematics there is. And these wise, educated, intelligent, cultural leaders had the sense to bend their knee because they knew who the babe in the manger was. And when you and I have the sense to bend our knee because we know who the one on the cross was, he, th- that great love, that great affection we have for our God will make us wise, will make us more guidable, will lead and guide us through the nuances and the complexities, the things you need to deal with this week whether on campus or at work, making you guidable, giving you great confidence, to borrow from uh, Dr. Timothy Keller. You know, it humbles us into the ground when we think about how small we are, but when you think about how loved you are, it raises you to the sky. And so now you're facing your next week, week with a great sense of confidence, knowing that your life is in the very hands of God, that he is guiding you, making you guidable, making you wise, to make decisions that are, that are prudent, In, in, uh, when Jesus was 12, we recall that the teachers marveled at his wisdom in the temple. Mark chapter 6, those that listened to Jesus, they said, where did he get this wisdom? Right? Jesus in Luke 11 says of himself, he says, one greater and wiser than Solomon is here, and he didn't even blink when he said it. He's come in his great grace to alleviate uh, us from being simple fools, led around by our noses based on what everybody else thinks. He's come in his great grace to save us from our sin, liberating us from being stubborn fools that only care about what we can conceive in our mind and and makes us God's fool. You know, Samuel Lamerson is the president of Knox Seminary where I went to school, and he always signed the end of of his emails, Theos Anoitos, which is God's fool. That's how he would always sign off his emails. Everybody's somebody's fool. I'm God's fool. And I just thought that was fantastic. And... um, So as we live in this awe and this wonder and this worship of God, as we marvel at the grace of Jesus, that is the beginning of wisdom. Because the cross and the empty tomb, they shine a spotlight on a sobering reality. This life that we're consumed with is not all that there is. And because that's true, may we bend our knee to not only the great God of the cosmos, but the one that you call Father, the one through Jesus who has been uh, given us the dignity of being his children. May we bend our knees at Christ's cross like the wise men bent their knees at Christ's manger, and may our awe and worship and wonder of the grace of God 
increasingly lead our hearts out of foolishness and into the wisdom of God. Amen. Let's pray.